Welcome to Palm Vista Community Church and the message this morning as we continue our series in the book of Genesis. It's the first book of the Bible, so we've entitled the series Beginnings. And the sermon this morning is entitled Heaven's Birth Announcement. Heaven's Birth Announcement. So last week we left Adam and Eve in a very precarious position, one of their own making. They were in paradise. They were in the the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Delights, but because of their disobedience, God drove them out of the Garden of Eden, and now in chapter 4, we find them outside of the Garden of Eden, of paradise. Paradise was lost because of the sin and disobedience of Adam and Eve. But last week, in the midst of this story of paradise lost, we saw the hope of paradise restored. The hope of paradise restored. And that hope was found in Genesis 3.15, where God said that he would put enmity between the seed of the serpent, Satan, and the seed of the woman. And so now Genesis 4 picks up that theme of this seed of the woman, this righteous seed, this hero, this person who would come and overcome the serpent, Satan. And so Genesis 4 is all about heaven's birth announcement. We're going to see three different individuals and their birth announcements given here in Genesis chapter 4. And here's the question. Will God fulfill his promise to provide a man to overcome the serpent? Will a hero emerge to save mankind? A man who can overturn the curse and bring the blessing. Will good triumph over evil? Will your life and my life be lived in blessing? Or will it be lived under the curse? It comes right down to us today. This idea of good triumphing over evil. This idea of a hero is the idea that has fueled every single major work of literature, or plays, or theater, down through the centuries. In fact, today's blockbuster movies, if you think about it, it's this idea of evil's out there, good's out there, and will good triumph over evil? Where's the hero? I mean, the superhero genre is just burgeoning today. Because it's an ancient story. All of those stories, all of those blockbuster movies borrow from the capital of Christianity. The capital, the the very knowledge and idea of good. There's a hope for good. There's evil. And will, will someone overcome that evil? And it's Jesus Christ. We know that as Christians. But our, but our first century Christians, brothers and sisters, were able to preach Christ from the Old Testament. They came right here to Genesis, and they preached Christ from Genesis. And we want to do that as well. Here's the main point of our text this morning. Heaven's birth announcement secures God's blessing for his people. Heaven's birth announcement secures God's blessing for his people. Genesis 4 is kind of organized around three birth announcements, basically. We're going to take a look at those three birth announcements, and we're going to ask ourselves, which one of these three is this righteous seed? Which one is, is, is the seed, the person, the man that's going to overcome the serpent, overcome Satan? There is a TV show 
that many people have watched. Actually, they've watched this TV show for the last seven decades. It's only one of two TV shows that has had a running uh, first episode over the last seven decades here in the United States. I believe the first show was, was 1956, the, the year I was born. And, it, and it's here today. You can turn on your TV and you can watch this show. And it's called To Tell the Truth. To tell the truth. You, you're probably familiar with it. You have four celebrities that are seated there. And then usually they have three contestants. So today our contestants are Cain, Abel, and Seth. And what these four celebrities do is that they ask questions of these three contestants because one of them is the main character. One of them is the hero. They've done something heroic. They've done something that is unusual. I think one that I saw the other day was a person who survived that plane crash in the Hudson. You know, the movie Sully. And they were actually on that plane crash. And so, and so the other two are imposters. And so these four celebrities ask all these questions. And here's the deal. The two imposters can lie their heads off. But the actual person has to tell the truth. And then at the end of all their questions, they choose. They, they choose okay, I think it's contestant number one. I think it's contestant number two. I think it's contestant number three. And at the very end, what does the host do? Well, the real, whatever, Please stand. And, you know, one pretends like they're standing and they sit down. And, the other, and then finally the real person stands up. I want you to think about that TV show. Because this morning we're going to be asking questions of Cain, Abel, and, we're going to, and Seth. And we're going to say, are you the seed? Are you the righteous seed? Are you the hero? Are you the one that's going to deliver us? Remember, Adam and Eve now are outside the garden. These are now going to be the first people born outside of the, uh, the garden. Which one is the righteous seed. So let's start with Cain and Abel, point one. In verses one and two, you see these two birth announcements. Let's read them. Now Adam, Genesis 4.1, knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. By the way, ladies, can you imagine poor Eve? I mean, she knows she sinned. She's no longer in the Garden of Delights. She remembers God say something like, I cursed you, in pain you shall bear children. Well, no one's ever born a child on earth before, right? Oh, can you imagine Eve as, as Cain is coming? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it came home very quickly to her. But she also knows that God promised to bring a savior through that seed. So she's wondering, as Cain is born, is this the one? And bore Cain saying, now listen to what she says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, verse 2, she bore his brother, Abel. So you have these first two birth announcements. And so the question is, are these the ones? Which one of these two, Cain or Abel, are the righteous seed? We read further as we're asking Cain and Abel, Cain, what do you do? Cain says, I am a tiller of the land. Okay, that makes sense. He's fulfilling the dominion mandate of chapter 2. He's taking dominion over the earth. He's, He's working the crops. Abel, what do you do? I'm a shepherd. I keep the sheep. So here you have these two brothers, the firstborn ever and his brother, who are working the land, fulfilling the dominion mandate. We asked them further. So what did you do? Well, we, after a couple of years maybe, we came to God and we brought our offering to God. Do you see that? So they bring this offering to God and we ask them what kind of offering is it? In verse 3, we see that in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, verse 4, also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. All right, great. 
But as we're asking more questions, we find out something very amazing. God accepted Abel's offering, but rejected Cain's offering. You see that there? The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And so we're just about to ask Cain, why are you angry, Cain, when suddenly God interrupts us? He has that right. And he asked Cain a series of questions. Now, I want you to remember that in chapter 3, God asked Adam and Eve a series of questions. Did God need to gain any information from Adam and Eve when he asked those questions? No. They were rhetorical questions. They were questions designed to cause Adam and Eve to look inward and to realize what they'd done. It's not like God needed any information. And he does the same thing here with Cain in verse 6. Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? Parents, we ask that question often of our children, right? (laughs) What's up, man? Why all the attitude? We ask it a little differently. We ask it, we don't know. God asked it, and he knew. Verse 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Now, as God is asking his question, see, we're seated here and we still have questions. Like, it's like we want to say to God, well, God, you did reject Cain's offering. That's why he's mad. And you did accept Abel's offering. So we're asking ourselves, and you should be asking yourselves, why? What about Abel and his offering did God reject? And why? And what about Cain, excuse me, Cain and his offering that God rejected. And what about Abel and his offering that God accepted? Why? Well, we have the answer in Hebrews. Hebrews? Yeah, Hebrews. Well, Al, I know that these were Hebrews eventually, but Hebrews? Yes. So go all the way, make a right-hand turn, go to the end of your Bible. Actually, you don't have to do that. It'll be on the screen. Hebrews 11.4. Here is why God accepted Abel's offering and rejected Cain's offering. Hebrews 11.4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. And then verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. It's amazing, isn't it? Back to Hebrews 11.4, put that up on the screen. And through his faith, though he died, Abel, he still speaks by faith. It's amazing. Abel worshipped God by faith. He didn't trust in his offering. He trusted God, and he, he was thankful to God, and he gave it in faith, and though he's dead, his faith still speaks. Church, let's, let's pause for a moment and think about this. How amazing. God had regard for Abel's offering because he offered it in faith, trusting in God's righteousness. In the same way, God has regard for our offering, not because we trust in our righteousness, but because we trust in the righteousness of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Isn't that amazing? 
That, that our lives and our work in this world would enjoy God's regard. God would look on it and say, I'm pleased. I receive it. Not because it's perfect, because it's not. None of us is. We make mistakes. We knock Bibles off of podiums. We get into accidents. We get mad at times. Some of us, a lot of times. But if it's in faith, God has regard for it because our faith's in Christ. So that when we go out into this world and we're working and we're doing and we're serving and we're doing as best we can in our businesses, in our ministries, with our families, with our children, in our marriages, with our friends, God has regard for it. He gives us his loving grace. Listen, God not only saved us from his wrath, and that's enough, but then he lets our lives and efforts have meaning and significance and the only place that really matters in his eyes. Ah. That enables us to sit back and say, Lord, even though things may not be going the way I want, thank you. Thank you, Lord. That's the fruit of faith. But the sad part of this is that Cain did not have that faith. Notice that Abel gave the firstborn of his flock the fatty portions. That was the best part. You know that, right? The portions, the fatty portions of the beef is always the tastiest, right? That's right, right around there. But Cain did not give the first fruits of his crops. He just gave some crops. And what that designates is there was not faith there. It was a half-hearted religious token toward God. Oh, church, we need to guard against tokenism. As, as my friend recently said to me, we need to guard against drive-by Reading the Bible and praying. You know how it is? You wake up in the morning, you know you kind of have to read, so you just kind of give a drive-by read. My heart's not really there. I'm just doing it because i got to check it off the box. No, Lord, I give you the first fruits. I give you my best. I give you my mind. I turn off the internet. I don't check my email. I don't check to see whether you know the Warriors beat the Cavs or whoever, whatever you want, or the Gators. But, but I go right to your word. You have me. You've got me, God, 100% this morning. Because I need you. It's not the act that makes it righteous. It's Christ in whom we have faith that I trust. Well, back to our text. We see in verse 8, there is no record, verses 7 and 8, there is no record that Cain ever responded to God. He did not respond to him. Instead, in verse 8, he murdered Abel. See it there? Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. That, that word killed him, it's a violent, harsh, premeditated murder. Bruce, Bruce Walkie in his commentary says the following on the screen. Cain fails at the altar, leading to failure in the field. The worshiper and his offering are inseparable. Who we are toward God defines who we are toward one another. You've heard this before. When I fail to love God, I surely am going to fail to love you. Just mark it down. And that helps me because when I have a conflict with my wife, which I did this weekend, then immediately it takes the focus off of her or off of even, you know, the issue, whatever the issue is. It was repainting doors in our house. How's that? So I'm holding the door, and she's holding the door, and we're yelling at each other about who's going to get the, take the screws off. You know? And if you know me, this is t- unscrewing a hinge from a door is about as technical as I get. Okay. 
Have you ever had one of those fights with your wife? And afterwards you go, what was that all about? Certainly not hinges on a door. But you know what that told me? That this little conflict right here said more about my relationship with God than my relationship with Desi. There's something wrong here. And there was. (laughs) There is. That's why I need a savior. (laughs) That helps me. That helps me. When I'm having a conflict, I need to ask myself, what do I want that I'm not getting? See, Cain wanted something. He wasn't getting it. So because his relationship with God was not right, he went out and killed his brother. Now, we may not physically kill our brother or sister, but we do it with our words, don't we? With our criticism, with our look, or with our silence. Depends on how you wage war. So that helps me. That helps me. Now, in verses 9 and 10, God takes over the questioning. And we are simply listening in now. This divine line of questioning begins to tumble toward Cain. And these are rhetorical questions. And God is speaking to Cain. And he's asking him. He says, listen. Verse 9. Where is Abel your brother? It's not like God didn't know where Abel was. He knew where Abel was. And then Cain just out and out lies to God. I do not know. And then not only does he lie to God, but you know how sometimes the perp will lie and then to make his lie sound like the truth, he gets bold about it. He goes, what, am I my brother's keeper? Can you believe that? I mean, he knew he killed Abel and he's, he's in God's face saying, am I my brother's keeper? You could actually translate that. Am I the shepherd's? Because Abel was a shepherd. Shepherd? Uh, do, do you see the shepherd in that right there? Because here's the deal. Cain, instead of loving his brother, killed his brother. But we, dear friends, we've got an older brother, unlike Cain, unlike the firstborn of Eve, who who did die for us. He gave himself for us. That's Jesus. The shepherd does care for us. And we see a pointing to Jesus Christ. Paul, excuse me, God then asks Cain, what have you done? You see that in verse 10? What have you done? Very similar to what he asked Eve when he looked at her. He knew what Eve had done. What have you done? And he asked Cain, what have you done? And and God is about to judge Cain. But before he does, I want to just settle into the grace of God here. Because all of us are Cain. We've murdered our brother. However we do it, we've done it. And we're like multiple murderers. You got multiple murders. We're serial murderers, serial killers at times. But here's the deal. The blood of Abel, as God said, was shouting out to God from the land. That blood was requiring justice because God said, I hear Abel's blood shouting at me from the ground and justice will be served. God will judge. But he brings grace in the midst of that. Again, Hebrews 12 on the screen. Verse 24. We're going to see a blood from someone. Blood from someone that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Because that blood of Jesus speaks the the word of forgiveness to us. And we see that in Romans 3, 23 to 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Let me go back. Let me slow down. I think I got ahead of the screen here. Let's go to verse 23 again. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all standing there with blood on our hands, the blood of Abel on our hands. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Amen. And verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation means God takes the wrath we deserve because Jesus took it on the cross. God gives us the favor we do not deserve. Propitiation how? By what? By his blood. To be received by what? By faith. By faith. Not by my works, but by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, not mine, God's. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God can remain just, justify us, though we are unjust, because Jesus took my punishment. Justice was served by the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. Praise God. Dear unbeliever, that's the gospel. Dear believer, that's the gospel. And it's on the backdrop of God's justice. Look at verse 11. God curses Cain directly, revealing that Cain is an imposter. He's not in the righteous line. He's in the line of the serpent because God cursed the serpent directly. The land, verse 12 through 14, will no longer yield to Cain. Cain, that wonderful farmer who was raising that great crop, is now driven from the land. Look at it there in verses 12 to 14. Just like Adam and Eve were driven from the garden, Cain is now driven from the land, and he's a wanderer. He's a nomad. He's driven from this land that bears fruit to the desert. This is where it really sings, church. Sit up straight here. This is good. Remember that Moses is writing this to the children of Israel who have been wandering for 40 years in the desert. And they're peeking at that land that's all green and lush with trees and fruit. Their mouth is watering from the, from the beautiful grapes they see hanging over the edge. And God is saying to them, listen, you are not of the seed of Cain. No, that's the people living there. I'm going to dispossess them. You're of the seed that's coming. And you will possess this land that I've called you to. And it's a land flowing with milk and honey. And that's Jesus. It's a picture of Jesus. And you know what encouraged Israel? That's why God put it in here. To encourage his people. To encourage us. Now sadly, we are confirmed in our understanding that Cain is not the righteous seed. We already know Abel's not the righteous seed. Why? Because he's dead. And so we're confirmed that Cain's not the righteous seed because in verses 17 to 24, you see that Cain's children and his children's children, they are violent, they are proud, they are vengeful. They, they build a city, but it's not, it's not the city of God, it's the city of man. It's a city devoid of God. Yes, they have great culture. Yes, they have great arts. They have a lot of great things, but God's nowhere to be found. They're harsh, vengeful. They take their own vengeance. With Cain's murder of Abel, all hope seems lost that a righteous seed will emerge from the woman to overcome the serpent. But heaven's final birth announcement in this text brings renewed hope. Point two, Seth. In verse 25, I want you to note how different, how different this broken-hearted mom's announcement of this pregnancy is or of this birth is can you imagine ladies if you have multiple uh sons if if your oldest son killed his brother imagine how broken-hearted you would be eve was broken she was broken but listen to verse 25 
Listen to what she says. Instead of like she said in verse 1, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. She says this, God, see that in verse 25b? God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. What we see here is this graciousness of God to provide the son, and we are blessed. And and Eve, in fact, the name Seth has a range of meaning that includes granted or placed or set in place. And what we see here is that God has provided now a new firstborn. Cain, we thought, was the man because he's the firstborn. But no, he's not the man. There's a new firstborn. And it's Seth. And in the midst of her mourning, Eve receives hope in the form of a son given to her by God. And church, in the midst of your mourning, you can rejoice because God gives you a son. And his name is Jesus. The true firstborn. Have you ever noticed how in the Bible so many firstborns fail? Read about it. You'd think the firstborn is the one, but they fail. You don't want to know why? Because there's only one true firstborn, Jesus, the firstborn from the dead. And he's here amongst us, church, by his spirit. Seth speaks to us this truth. God fulfills his promise. There will be a real hero. There will be one who overcomes the serpent. So... (laughs) Point number three, when they say, will the real hero, will the real seed of the woman who will overcome the serpent please stand up? Who stands up is Seth, but what Seth does, he stands up, he says, well, actually, it's not me, it's Jesus. How can I say that? Because if you look in your New Testaments in Luke chapter 3, you will notice that Seth is in the line of Christ, Luke 3.38. Listen, the joy of Seth's birth was great. But it simply pointed to a greater joy of a greater birth, and that is the ultimate Seth, Jesus Christ, and that birth announcement is recorded for us in the New Testament. Luke 2, 8 to 14, on the screen. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, the seed, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying. Now before we look at what they were saying, here's what I imagine. Sanctified imagination. This, this same heavenly host had been there when Seth was born. And I think they were celebrating. It's like you celebrate on game three of the playoffs, right? But it's nothing like the celebration that you, you do on game four when you win the playoffs. I mean, they were just warming up at Seth's birth. Those same angels now are part of this heavenly host here in Luke chapter 2 and verse 14. And what do they say? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased because this is the promised seed. This is the hero. Will the real hero stand up? That hero is Jesus Christ 
who overcomes the curse by taking it for us and gives us the blessing. This is the one who, with paradise lost, now restores paradise. He's the one that defeats the enemy on the cross and in his resurrection and ascension. And he rules and reigns in heaven. And he's standing in our midst today by his spirit to speak encouragement to us. Because we're like Israel, wandering through the desert. It's hot. Corey alluded to this when he preached on marriage. Marriage was made in the, in, in the garden, was made in paradise, but sometimes marriage isn't a paradise, right? It's true. But Jesus gives us the promise that he will restore, the promise that he will bless, the promise that he, because he took the curse for us. He took the curse for us. See, here's the deal. Because we are in the line of Christ, Dear Christian, the curse has been taken by Christ. You have the blessing, but you've got one more thing. Don't forget 315. 315 was the declaration of war. 315 was saying, God was saying, the seed of the woman will overcome you. There will be combat. There will be fighting. That's what defines all of human history. That's what defines all the great movies you see. There's always a conflict. There's always going to be a war. Will the good guys win? And Jesus is the one who defeats the enemy, but Jesus ascended into heaven, sent his spirit, and when he comes back, that battle, it will be all over. But between the day that he defeated Satan on the cross and the day that he returns, there is still combat, and because we are in the line of Christ, guess what? We're in the middle of that combat. That's why you have conflicts with your wife when you're trying to hang and paint a door. A silly little thing. That's why you yell at people on the freeway. That's why you get depressed. That's why you have a face that has fallen and you're, you just got a bad mood because of the conflict. But the hope is that Jesus has overcome that conflict. The hope is that Jesus has given us the blessing rather than the curse. And the hope is that as we suffer in this world, as Christ suffered, there is glory that is guaranteed by God. Guaranteed by God. As you experience those conflicts in your, in your, with your siblings, you have brothers and sisters. You can, there can be horrible, discouraging conflicts there. Misunderstandings, even lying, even murder in the sense of just what you say about each other. That can be so um, heartrending. As you experience this conflict in your marriage, as you experience this conflict when you go to work or school or in your neighborhoods or where you play and you're, you're sharing about Jesus Christ, you can trust our God, even as Israel, who was poised in the desert, about to go into the promised land, and they knew there would be enemies there. They had the land. It was guaranteed. They were God's people. It was guaranteed. But they knew there was combat to come. God encouraged them. Whether the enemy is inside of you, the flesh, or out there, the world, God will give you his grace because he's done it for you in Christ, your elder brother, who instead of killing you in the field like Cain did, died for you on the cross. He will give you the grace to work with excellence when everyone around you is taking shortcuts. He will give you the grace to engage your world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, your elder brother, the promised seed of the woman, the hero who overcomes the serpent. He will. He will give that to you. He will give that to me. So we come to him and we worship him. We come out of the desert of our lives in this world into the promised land of his grace and blessing. So I want to end our sermon in a little different way. I'm going to pray in just a moment. As always, if you're an unbeliever this morning, I would just say, please repent and believe in Jesus. He is the only way. You've heard the gospel. If you need it explained, come talk to Corey, me. Speak to the person with whom you're seated right now. 
But dear Christian friend, what I want to do is I want to end our time together by just worshiping God. Just just let this word sit on you. We, we sang that earlier. We said, Lord, your word bring, gives us life. And it does. And you've heard the word and it gives you life. And so we're going to sing the last two worship songs again. He who is mighty and what a savior. After I pray. And we're just going to worship God. And, and if God gives you a, a word for somebody, or if God gives you a prayer for somebody, just quietly excuse yourself and go over and pray for them. But, but mostly, this is God word. That's the application this morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness and mercy. Thank you that we have an elder brother who gave his life for us. Thank you that it is the righteousness of Christ upon which we rest when the battle, the combat as Christians against the flesh rises up in our hearts, in our homes. Thank you, Lord, when we're out there sharing the gospel. We feel the combat between you and and the serpent, and we're right in the middle of it because we're part of your people. Lord, thank you that you cover us. Thank you that you give us strength. Even when we're in difficult and dangerous situations, I pray for our brothers and sisters that are physically in danger right now in Turkey. Think of our brother, our pastor friend in Turkey, oh Lord, bless him. Lord, I pray for those that are, are, are in need and want because of Christianity. They have been denied many things just because they're Christians. Lord, give them grace. Think of our brothers and sisters in Cuba. And Lord, give us grace as we stand and say, you are able to give us the land. You are able. Lord, you have turned our curse into a blessing in Christ. And we're so grateful. So we worship you now, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's start with he who is mighty. Let's stand and let's worship the Lord. Sing both of those last two songs.